0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again as we come to your Holy Word, Father, I pray that you might remove distractions from our thoughts and from our minds and that you would help us to focus in on honoring your Word and thus honoring you in the preaching of your Word and the hearing of your Word as well as in the application of your Word as you would renew our minds as you would... Bring to our thoughts by your Spirit sins that we need to repent of, things that we need to let go of that we may cling to Christ in a greater way. I pray, Father, that you may do that amongst us by your Spirit. We know that unless your Spirit works in our hearts and opens our eyes to our sins, as well as to the beauty and the glory of Christ and treasuring him above all things, nothing will happen, Lord. And so we are reminded of that, and we pray that you might open our eyes to behold beautiful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and the focus of our time this morning will be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. And the title of our morning's message is, Clinging to the All-Sufficient Christ. Clinging to the All-Sufficient Christ. So a few weeks ago, uh, some of you know that uh, some of us as staff, uh, jumped on a bus and in great bravery, we actually traveled a whole day to New Mexico with our youth, our high schoolers to Camp Region, which is our summer high school camp. And so the elders gave me permission to travel with the, with the group. Thank you, elders, you know, if you're in here. And, um, it was a wonderful time to be able to travel to Camp Region. To New Mexico and uh, there were many highlights obviously the interaction with the staff uh, I can tell you this you have some wonderful people um, Working with your youth if you have youth in junior high and high school uh, They really care and love your kids and um, they pray for them And they're very aware of some of the struggles that they have and so I was very encouraged to hear from them some of the testimony of just some of the things going on in the kids lives and how they are seeking to come alongside of them and just interacting with them as well was a, a privilege and a blessing and uh, once we got to Camp Region, obviously, the messages were amazing. It was around the theme, uh, Follow Me. Uh, what does it mean to follow Christ? Uh, great messages, some godly men bringing the Word to bear upon our lives, and that was very, very encouraging. And, of course, for me, being a competitive guy, one of the highlights was the great games, the great games at Camp Region. Man, I know that a couple of the students got hurt, and I was so sorry to hear that, and yet the games were still pretty amazing, right, if you take the right um, precautionary measures. Um, so we had a fun time watching the kids compete. Um, we had a couple of teams. Basically the teams were named after a, 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 um, a country. And for some reason we got Texas and Antarctica. <laughs> I know Texas thinks that they're their own country, but what's up with that? You know? And then we got the name Antarctica. Everybody knows that that's a city. That's not even a a country, you know? See, some of you guys haven't woken up yet, have you? <clears throat> Antarctica continent okay it was fun watching the kids uh, compete and the other uh thing that um the games brought to my attention was just a it was a humbling time for me um as a staff uh, because some of us were actually allowed to compete in the games and i got to tell you man i came back convinced that i am no spring chicken anymore I mean, the last time that I was at a camp that was that intense in terms of the games was like 20 years ago, I think it was. That man, 18 years ago. And man, now that I'm 40, uh, definitely takes a toll on your body. But they allowed the, the staff to play. And you know, for me, I, I like getting in there with the kids and all of that if I'm able to. And and uh, there was this one game. I think it's called Kajabi Kan-Kan. Is that the right way to say it, Jim? Kajabi? Is it a Japanese game or what's the deal? I don't know. Kajabi can-can. Uh, basically, the game is played with everyone in a circle, eight, ten people or whatever, and everybody's connected by holding pieces of rope. Okay, uh, And the object of the game is basically to eliminate people one by one by knocking somebody um, uh, into a, a large trash can in the middle of the circle. I know. Can you imagine staff flying back and forth? You know, Or you can yank the rope off of another person's hand. And eliminate them that way. If you let go of the rope, you're done, right? So until uh, the end, when a couple of people duke it out to see who wins. Uh so, one of the rounds, they they asked for senior high schoolers to come in, kind of these big dudes, right, all muscular and great shape, and and then staff adults for a round of this thing. And uh, so there I went, right. And um, you know, being a veteran of games such as these, you know, I'm, I have lofty expectations for myself. I'm thinking this is this is going to go good. You know, these guys, they may look bigger than me but i'm a lot smarter and better looking than they are right (laughs) one minute into this game one minute well not even a minute i was eliminated (laughs) i was the first guy eliminated i mean by a kid like 10 times smaller than me like that tall and um it didn't take very much to yank the rope out of my hands or my my left hand and um you know, I walked away in utter despair, thinking, what in the world went wrong? I mean, you guys can see me up here, right? There's not, a, there's not an inch of chubbiness in me. I'm all muscle. What happened? What happened? It didn't make sense to me until a few minutes later, one of the kids um, came and gave me some kajabi can-can wisdom, and he said, Pastor Kempis. He said, right before they blew the horn, I saw you from across the way, because he was in the game himself. He said, I saw you from across the game. You did not have the rope. You were not holding the rope correctly. He said, what do you mean by that? How do you hold the stinking ropes? You know. He said, well, you were holding the ropes this way. You should have been holding the ropes this way. And this way you can cling on with fuller strength, get a tighter grip on the ropes and not get eliminated. I said, well, that explains it because I'm a lot stronger than all of them and I got eliminated first. It was a technique issue, not a smarts or looks issue, right? I did not have a tight grip on that rope, right? And the other kids obviously told me the same thing and at least two or three other meals to let, let me know that their pastor had let them down, right? I did not cling with full strength to those ropes, right? That's it. You know, I thought about that example and how that happens to Christians in the Christian life. That we don't, we focus on peripheral things many times in the Christian life, on things that really at the end of the day don't matter as much as maybe the value that we place upon them. And we lose our grip of Christ, we don't hold fast to Jesus Christ, our all-sufficient Savior in the Christian life. We run to peripheral matters in the Christian life. And this leads to great discouragement, of course, and great lethargy in our lives, beloved. That happens to us as well. And it was happening to the Colossian believers, as we've been seeing, that these false teachers had come in amongst them and were adding or supplementing Christ, attacking the sufficiency of Jesus That Jesus was enough, and yet they were adding to Christ. They weren't saying or denying that Christ wasn't necessary, but they were saying it's Christ plus rituals. It's Christ plus abstinence from certain things. It's Christ plus asceticism, legalistic rituals and festivals and such things that you need to live out. Tradition, man-made rules and regulations. It's good that you have Jesus, but you need these other things. And Paul, in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, as we saw a few weeks ago, says, Don't succumb to those things. Walk in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ and live accordingly. Make sure that you are living and conducting yourself in such a manner that you show by your Christian life that you are in Jesus. In Him you have everything. Conduct yourself in accordance with Jesus. But as always, as it is the case for us, it was the case for the Colossians, there are always distractions and detractors to lead us away from Jesus, right? And in their case, it were th- there were things like worldly philosophy, and so in verses 8 through 15, he talks to them about the fact that in contrast to worldly philosophy, Christ is sufficient. Christ, you are complete in Jesus. He is enough. You don't need to be wavering and going after empty philosophy that is fruitless and useless. Christ is everything that you need. In verses 16 through 17, Paul exhorts them against legalism that detracts from Christ. That takes their attention away from Jesus. Dietary restrictions, rituals, were only shadows pointing to the greater reality, says Paul, who is Christ. Christ is the substance of these things. These things were pointing to the greater reality. They were good and profitable in pointing to the Messiah who would come. Somebody has written this. It is ridiculous to think that Christ has opened the gate of our prison cell to to set us free from sin, only to put us in another cell of sin called legalism. See, the legalist focuses on keeping man-made traditions, external rituals, and they're incarcerated in this terrible sin. And Paul says, reject legalism. Remember that Jesus is the substance of these things. In verses 18-19, through we're going to see that he exhorts them against mysticism that is detached from Christ. That detaches them from the head, so to speak, who is Christ. In verses 20 to 23, he exhorts them against asceticism that is devoid of Christ. And so this morning, what I want to do is focus and zero in on verses 18 through 19. We have the privilege of looking at these verses and Paul's exhortation against mysticism that is detached from Christ. How would you define mysticism? There are various ways that we could define it, and different elements that we can bring into this. But mysticism may be defined this way. It is the pursuit of a deeper and higher religious experience, largely through internal feelings and internal intuition. Intuition is the ability to understand something without human reason or objective truth mysticism is largely subjective in nature your experience becomes the authority ultimately what comes from within from your own experiences this is why some have referred to mysticism as as a form of experientialism different than experience experience experiencing something is not wrong in itself right The Christian life is about experiencing, if you will, theology. And those things that we know as we practice them and see them fleshed out in our Christian lives. Last week, uh, Pastor David Robles, for instance, went into James chapter 1 and talked to us about the right response to trials. And James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And then in verse 3, James says this, Knowing... That the testing of your faith produces endurance. That word knowing there in James 1 3 has to do with experiential knowledge. Because you know from experience is the idea that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Christianity, including trials, is not theoretical in nature, right? It involves the mind and the renewal of the mind. Which then fleshes itself out onto our experience. Theology must flesh out in the way that we live in our experience. So, experiencing itself is not wrong, right? But experiencing something is not the same as experientialism, where your subjective experience becomes the authority and the standard by which you live, and you impose that upon others. And in Colossians, this is what Paul is combating. A certain type of mystical experientialism, as asserted by these false teachers. The Colossian heretics were claiming a higher, deeper, and more complete experience with God than Christ alone could provide for them. And according to them, the way that these believers could achieve a greater closeness to God was through the keeping of such things as external rituals refraining externally from certain foods and practices pursuing certain intermediary beings such as angels and visions and mystical experientialism that could connect them to god in a greater way they were supplementing christ they were attacking the sufficiency of christ as if christ was not enough their experience could be fuller and richer if only they could add these things to jesus who already they already had our secular culture, beloved, there are many people who base their lives on subjective experiences who claim that the answers to life are found within the human psyche, and they fix fix their, 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 their attention upon things such as transcendental meditation, things like yoga, the whole New Age movement, which is all designed to for you to dig deep for the, the light within. Truth is found within. You just have to discover it. You have everything that you need in yourself. You're, you're self-sufficient. So you need to meditate and reflect deeply so that ultimately in that reflection you can reach greater closeness to God, right? Or whoever your deity may be. It was happening in that day and it happens in our day and age as well. And even Christians, unfortunately, can latch on to these kinds of things. These types of distractions, Right? And so even in our text, Paul in verses 18 through 19 exhorts these believers to reject mystical experientialism and to cling to Christ. To reject these things and to cling to Jesus, to hold on to him. And the way that he does this in verses 18 and 19 is twofold. In verse 18, he exposes the false spirituality of mysticism. He exposes the false spirituality of mysticism in verse 18. And then in verse 19, he warns them of the fatal flaw of mysticism. Of the fatal flaw of mysticism. Let's look first of all in verse 18 at the false spirituality of mysticism. For these false teachers were promoting this syncretistic religious system with elements of Jewish religiosity and pagan philosophy. And as Paul commanded them in verse 16, with regards to legalism, let no one act as your judge. So he commands them in verse 18, if you notice, and he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. And I like that translation defrauding. Because it sends a good picture to us, doesn't it? It points to the fact that they were cheating them. That they were robbing them by deception of what was rightfully theirs in Christ Jesus. The verb means to decide against someone as when an umpire decides against a batter and calls the the batter out on strikes, right? Or better yet, as the ESV puts it, to disqualify someone. I like that translation. They were looking to disqualify them. You know, our family enjoys watching World Cup soccer. And nation against nation, not so much club. We want to watch the best of the best, right? And go against each other. And in soccer, a referee can give you either a yellow card or a red card based upon the breaking of a rule or a foul. If they give you a yellow card, it functions kind of as as just a warning. And a second yellow card gets you kicked out of the game, right? But if you get a red card, it's immediate disqualification from competition, you forfeit your, pl- your right to play for the prize. It was kind of funny. In the semifinal game of the European Championships, in fact, one guy was given a red card. And, of course, he's arguing with the referee, and the crowd's going crazy and all of that. And later on, there were accusations about the fact that the referee had been paid, and that's why he gave the guy the red card. Soccer players are pretty uh, dramatic guys, Right? But this player realized that he had gotten a red card and he was kicked out of the championship game and they ended up winning the whole thing and yet he wasn't able to play in that championship game. He understood the ramifications of that, that he was disqualified and thus missed out on the prize. Obviously, he got the prize anyway, but he wasn't able to compete for it and earn it, right? This is the idea here, beloved. Paul says, don't let these false teachers pull out a red card on you and disqualify you. Don't let them do that. You have everything that you need in Christ. But the difference in in what these false teachers were doing is that they were making these believers play by different rules than God's rules. They had made up their own rules of what true spirituality consisted of. And Paul said, don't succumb to their teaching. You are disqualified from achieving the prize of earning the prize if you succumb to what they're telling you to do. Christ is sufficient. He's everything that you need. Notice, robbing them or defrauding you of your prize. What is this prize? It consisted of experiencing the fullness of that intimate relationship with Jesus. We know that as believers we are in union with Christ. We saw that in the previous context, right? That we are in Christ. We have this intimate relationship with Christ. But beloved, it's very possible for believers to not experience the fullness of of blessings and privileges that come with that relationship. When we succumb to peripheral matters that have no direct bearing upon heartfelt, a genuine heartfelt holiness. And that's what was going on here. Don't let them rob you of your prize, of the blessings richly supplied in Christ. Such things as joy and peace knowing that you are at peace with God in Christ Jesus, of spiritual insight, of fellowship with God and with His people, of love, of victory over sin, of holiness. All of those things have to do with the prize that comes from being in union with Christ. He's saying, don't let them do that. Don't let them rob you of that by deception and by their own man-made rules and rituals. You're sufficient in Jesus, in Christ We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, we have everything that pertains to life and godliness. In Christ, we have been made complete. Amen? But when we succumb to legalism, to mysticism, to asceticism, all of these isms... And many other things, we can be robbed of the joy and the peace and the victory that comes from the gospel, beloved. And the security of being in Christ and being identified with Jesus. For them it was false teachers. But there will always be people who will make their experiences the object of their faith. And in so doing, lead us away from Christ and His word, right? Yesterday we saw a movie um, that just came out on DVD. We get the name of the movie right now, but... It's about a little girl. I think it's based upon a true story. A little girl who gets really, really sick with a stomach issue, intestinal issue. And through, she started off as a very happy little girl in the movie, obviously. And then she contracts this disease, and it's a terminal disease. There's no healing for it. And as the movie progresses, uh, she becomes very um, doubtful toward God and angry and resentful toward the Lord. And um, it's, a, it's amazing to watch how that happens. But the turning point in the movie was this little girl at one point falls inside of a a 100-year-old hollow tree head first onto the the ground. And instead of dying, she actually ended up living and being healed. Um, But after after they rescued her out of that tree, it was interesting. She's talking to her parents and bearing testimony to them of something that happened to her while inside of the tree. And she said that she had a personal encounter with God. That God spoke to her. That she had vision or some kind of a dream. And that in that dream or vision, God told her that everything was going to be okay. And you know what? I have no doubt. Obviously, it's based upon a true story that that terminal illness and that little girl being being healed from that, that God works miracles, does He not? He absolutely does. And we should pray that God would heal, if it is His will, heal people in our lives. I have no doubt that God did that. But it's interesting how the movie became fixated toward the end, the last quarter, upon the girl's experience, right? Because Hollywood loves, beloved, to sell that. They, they love to sell those kinds of things. And all of a sudden you have this nebulous faith. And the object of faith isn't Jesus Christ. All of a sudden it's this, this, this God, um, who is, who is neutral, who doesn't, who doesn't appear to be personal, but it's all about her experience with God. This God that really, you can't really know. Our society loves to, to exalt those kinds of things. And before you know it, of course, the mystical experience was exalted more than God Himself. Well, the same was happening in Colossians, in a different sense. And Paul doesn't want these believers to be robbed of their prize by succumbing to these things. So he exposes this false spirituality of these false teachers. And I want you to see what he says in verse 18. First of all, he exposes their false spirituality in that it is showing their false humility and false worship. Look at verse 18. It is focused... Or they're focused on delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels. These first two descriptions are connected by this term delighting. They're delighting or taking pleasure, these false teachers, in two false assertions. First of all, in their self-abasement. This is the word humility. A good word that he uses in chapter 3 verse 12 when he says, Put on a heart of humility. But here, and in verse 23, this word is being used negatively here, giving the sense of a false humility. These false teachers were looking at their refraining from certain activities, their dietary restrictions, ascetic practices, um, interaction with, with spiritual beings, and thought of themselves as humble, as pious, because of those things that they de- did not do in comparison to others. And that is always the mark of a proud person, Right? Humility, internal humility, is driven and cultivated by a person, a believer, who constantly is putting himself or herself before the holiness of God, right? And if we do that, we realize we do not measure up to the infinite glory and holiness of God. And so there's a lowliness of mind that is cultivated in our lives. But the proud person is constantly, constantly, constantly comparing himself or herself to other people how we measure to uh, measure up to other people based upon our system of christianity that we've created sometimes our substandards that we've created beloved so they are falsely humble notice also they delight in verse 18 in the worship of angels They take pleasure in the worship of angels. They held that there was a hierarchy of angels between humans and God ascending up to God and that one's rise to a deeper spirituality, higher knowledge and closer encounter with God happened as one came into contact with these higher spiritual beings or intermediaries between themselves and God. They were promoting false worship, these mediators between themselves and God. Early church tradition records that especially during the first few hundred years, there was a great enamorment with the worship of angels. In fact, one historian writing in the 5th century wrote this, "...this disease of worshiping angels long remained in Phrygia and Pisidia. Chapels or temples were dedicated to the archangel Michael." And in fact, there was a 4th century gathering of prominent Christians who forbid by a decree the offering of prayer to angels. So even early on in church history, we see that the church was was enamored. Prominent was the worship of spiritual beings, of, of angels. And times haven't changed, right? People are so enamored by the worship of spiritual beings, including angels. It's been the case of late, even in the media industry. One contemporary writer writes this, In popular media, angels incline to be sentimental beings, comical, and angeology has largely been replaced by strictly secular and allegorical, psychological and anthropological explanations, which drain them of spiritual power. This renewed fixation on angels crosses religious and secular lines, angels that regularly intervene in the lives of individuals, from the plots of many movies and television series. Bookstores are filled with glittering books and dazzling calendars on angels. The glut of publication suggests that the angel industry has become quite profitable. End quote. This is very true, right? There is a boatload of money being made by the media industry. People who latch on to these these people who claim to have personal encounters with spiritual beings or angels. It's all over the place, beloved. Books being written. Just go on the internet and Google that. And you'll find many, many self-acclaimed people who say that they receive revelations from spiritual beings. And what is worse is that Satan uses the media industry, right? He uses the media industry and these false assertions by people to pump out the idea the idea that angels are more personal than God himself. While God is not accessible to you, angels are pretty accessible to you, right? God is against you, but angels are for you. In fact, you have your own guardian angel next to you right now. The writer and director of the movie Michael, presumably about the archangel Michael, writes the following. What people can't stand is everyone wants to believe that God notices you, that he notices the details of your life, but he doesn't. The horrible truth is that he probably doesn't notice. He's got more important things to do. But angels, listen to this, angels do notice. You know, angels make the tow truck come when you have a flat tire, end quote. This is the message that we get through movies and social media, people coming out of the woodwork saying that they've had personal encounters with spiritual beings and exalting spiritual beings, right? All of this, beloved, is idolatry and false worship. It is Romans 1, people worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, right? It is a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods beside me. And the truth is this, God's holy angels, when have God's holy angels ever wanted worship for themselves? Unless they're demons or Satan himself. Satan wants worship for himself. But what do we find in Isaiah 6 and places in Revelation? What are the angels constantly doing? They're worshiping God, right? Worshiping Him in His infinite glory. They don't want worship for themselves. Even in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, an angel tells John, don't worship me, essentially. I am a fellow servant of yours. That's what angels are, ministers of God. Ministering. God's messengers to us, if you will. So what these heretics are imposing upon these believers is a terrible, terrible sin. That in order to draw close to God, they must go through spiritual beings, climb the ladder, so to speak. And in so doing, they are attacking the sufficiency of Christ. And this is false, misplaced worship, isn't it? That's what it is. And listen, Christ is the one mediator between God and men, isn't he? To talk about intermediary beings, whether they are spiritual beings or or man uh, human beings who mediate between us and God, such as Roman Catholicism, is heresy because Jesus is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus is the one mediator, says first Timothy two five The confidence of the believer is not in in spiritual or human mediators, but in the one mediator Jesus christ right so in exposing their false spirituality paul talks about their false humility their false worship but notice thirdly in verse 18 their false convictions their false convictions taking his stand he says on visions he has seen the esv puts it going on in detail about visions The sense here is that they claim and they have great confidence about their subjective experiences. They're dominated and consumed by them to the point that they impose them upon other people. This really, really happened. I really, really did have these visions. And in order for you to experience the fullness, greater, deeper closeness with God, you need to have the same experiences. I have encountered people like that, beloved. People who claim... To have had mystical experiences. People who claim visions and dreams and special revelation from God. And when I would ask them, how do you know it was God? And inquiring further, essentially the answer was, you just have to take my word for it. Right? I remember in El Salvador, sitting down with about ten pastors... And discussing, uh, we were wanting to work with them and, and discussing with them certain things about ministry. And, and one of them led into the fact that they all were at different churches, but they were basically under the umbrella of a present apostle or prophet. And there were others who were also connected to this guy. And I said, interesting. I said, what about the fact that in, this, in the Bible, right? Ephesians chapter 2, it says that the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church with Jesus as the cornerstone. So wouldn't it mean that there couldn't be present apostles and prophets? Because after all, the foundation has been laid and established. And God is building His church. So those are, 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 are gone now that we have the complete revelation from God. There's no more need for present day apostles and prophets. And they wouldn't answer me. They wouldn't respond. And say, what about the fact that any apostle had to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ? He had to do that. Of course, no answer, right? And in the case of Saul, obviously, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and called him specifically to be an apostle to the Gentiles. See, objective truth from God's word, trying to point them to the word of God. But they would not have it because it was all about the the self-acclaimed apostle. And if he had said that he had these experiences and visions, guess what? He has them and there's nobody that could argue with him. And he had 1,200 plus followers. Who's going to argue with that guy who's got that many followers, right? Right? And, of course, we would ask, who are you? What makes you so special that you have these these experiences? What makes you so unique? And the answer that I typically got from different people is, well, Pastor, God is using me to bring a special message to his church in this day. I said, well, God is also using me to bring a special message to you. You're a heretic, and it's wrong for you to be preaching that. Or, Pastor, you lack faith. You lack faith. If you really had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, God would allow you to be able to see the same revelations as me. In fact, one place, there was a prevalent teaching that unless you had uh, God had audibly spoken to you or had given you a vision of your future, you had not truly received the Holy Spirit or you lacked the faith to access God's great acts. Can you imagine the poor little true sheep in those churches? And I believe that God saves people even within churches like that. Few. But there were and there are examples that I can think of. Can you imagine how they felt inferior with a sense of the fact that of this elitism kind of Christianity? That there were some amongst them that had these great revelations. They couldn't really explain them based upon objective truth. But, it, but nobody could argue with them. And so they were Better. And that's the effect that these kinds of things have in the church, beloved, creating second-class-rate believers. Because we have not had the same experiences, right, that others have. Notice, fourthly, in verse 18, they had a false maturity. A false maturity, he says, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. You know what they claimed? That they were very pious, very spiritual, very mature They claimed a deeper, higher, more elite spirituality. But notice, in actuality, they are spiritually proud. They are inflated. They are puffed up. They toot their own horn. And the source of all of this is their fleshly mind in verse 18. Fleshly mind. Though they may boast of great things, they don't have a great track record of holiness, right? This is why, look at verse 23. Paul says, with regards to these things and everything else he's been talking about, these isms, he says, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. He says, these things have no moral power. They're devoid of moral power because the foundation is not the truth of Jesus Christ. No power. No power. And so these guys have a big bark, but no bite, right? I remember going on walks in Santa Clarita with my family. And um, we would pass by this one house where there were these two extremely annoying chihuahuas. You've seen them, right? You've seen those. They kind of look like rats on steroids, right? And they would see us from a distance, and they would be barking their heads off. I mean, you know? be walking with my little kids and as we would approach the front of the house of course they were doing this all within a a fenced enclosed yard right you can't you couldn't get into and they knew that but we're passing by and they're barking and doing this thing and just for fun just for laughs i would suddenly take a few rapid steps from time to time toward them to scare them and they would immediately run away with the tail between their legs right big bark no bite right big bark No bite. That's the picture of these false teachers here. They boasted of great personal spirituality, high and mighty, but really possessed no spiritual power when push came to shove. None. They were not who they appeared to be. Paul says, don't let them rob you of your prize, for they have a false spirituality. And this false spirituality shows itself in false humility, in false worship, in false convictions, in false maturity. All of this shows that they are detached from Christ, right? Secondly, notice the fatal flaw of mysticism. The fatal flaw of mysticism. What's wrong with all of this? What's wrong with legalism? What's wrong with worldly philosophy? What's wrong with, with mysticism and, and, and uh, looking for your authority in your own experiences and not looking to the truth of Christ and His Word? What's wrong with all of these things? What is most deadly is that they, these things are not holding fast to the head who is Christ, Right? And these false teachers were holding loosely to Christ on the one hand, but on the other hand, they were holding on to rituals and events, false humility, false worship, false convictions, false maturity. You know what they were all about? They were all about exalting self rather than exalting Christ, right? All about exalting themselves. Beloved, we can hold on to other forms of spirituality today, right? Right? Maybe not so much experiential mysticism. But whenever you and I run to other priorities and emphasize other things but Christ and what He reveals in His Word, we are not holding fast to Christ. Whenever we are in our pursuit of holiness, we're trusting in our methods, our formulas, our discipline, our church attendance, our church involvement, our own knowledge instead of Christ, we are not holding fast to Christ. Christ. Whenever we exalt human experiences, such as human intuition, apart from objective truth of God's Word, visions, and we're enamored by the culture and the latest claims to people having had mystical experiences, and we go after those things, and we're enamored by them. We are not holding fast to Christ when we make these things the basis of our faith and not God and His Word, right? And these things show that we're not holding fast to the head who is Jesus. Notice verse 19. That's the fatal flaw. They're detached from Christ. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, we saw that Jesus is as the, as the head of the body, the church. And what we said that that term head means, on the one hand, is supreme authority, absolute sovereignty. Jesus is, has, has supreme authority and absolute sovereignty in His church. But the other side to this is this added beautiful element to this metaphor is this beautiful organic connection that Christ as the head has with his people. That as a tree derives its its life from its fruit, so God's people, the body of Christ, the redeemed in Christ, derive their vitality and their life from the head who is Christ. And you cut off the head, what happens to the body? Dead. Dead. Christ is the head. Christ is our life source. One pastor has written, the life-giving presence of Christ makes all the difference between an empty inflation and a true growth. Christ is the vital source of our nourishment. End quote. What does it mean, beloved, that Jesus is our, the source of our life? That He is the head, individually and corporately? What does that mean, But that we have everything that we need in Christ, right? That we have everything that pertains to life and godliness in Christ. That in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That in Him we are complete, as Colossians says. That in Christ we have a reservoir of all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And as Hebrews says in Christ, He is our high priest, right? Who can sympathize with our weaknesses because He has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. We can come to Him with our trials and our afflictions and our sufferings. Amen? That's what it means that Christ is our head. That we find joy and forgiveness in Christ. That we find answers and clarity that we desperately need in circumstances that are difficult, too much to bear for the human being. We can come to Christ and He can empower us and illumine us by His Spirit and His Word. He is the head, the life source for us, beloved. In Christ, we don't despair in trials, right? As Pastor David Robles spoke about last week, but we find that His grace is sufficient for us. That His power is perfected in our weakness. He is our company and our comfort and loneliness and depression. Christ, beloved, is our all in all. Paul puts it this way. Christ is our life. Colossians 3, 4. He is our life. Clinging to Christ. As our all-sufficient saviors where true holiness and victory for the believer begins. Christ, beloved, makes all of the difference. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Notice what he says in verse 19. He says, And not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, so the life source, the fountainhead is Christ." But then the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Who is the body of Christ? It is the redeemed. Those who have turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus, right? And are in union with Christ. You are now a member of the body of Christ. A Beautiful, beautiful metaphor. Our Lord Jesus is our life source who works and grows us through His body, the church. That's precisely Paul's point in the rest of the verse as he expands upon this beautiful picture or metaphor of Christ as the head and everybody working together, the entire body deriving its vitality from Christ, growing together and maturing in Christ together collectively. Where in the world do people get the idea that they can be detached from the church and yet they have a great personal relationship with God in Christ? Where is that found in the New Testament? I want to see it. Yes, salvation first and foremost is, is being reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ. That vertical relationship must be reconciled first. But beloved, then you are put into a community, into a body of believers, and we are one in Christ. And you cannot say that you are a believer if you are not committed to Jesus' bride, His people. You cannot if that is the pattern of your life. I understand there are periods and seasons of life. When that's going to look different in many of our lives, we understand that. I'm talking about people who just live an isolated, uh, a maverick type of Christianity. Where in the world is that in verse 19? holding fast to the head who is Christ, from whom the entire body, all of the people of God, collectively being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Everybody is contributing. The the picture here is of members mutually contributing to and strengthening one another and in unity, moving in one direction together, maturing and growing. What a beautiful picture. And all of this growth is ultimately from who? Who? from God with a growth which is from God and the implication to the false teachers is what their false teaching and all of the elements the isms that they're teaching are not in accordance with a growth which comes from God they are detached from Christ because those things will not lead to gospel transformation right they won't listen we are joined together in Christ He is the life source for us. He is the one in union with Him. And then from that, we are also joined to other believers and interconnected with other believers. And beloved, there's nothing, nothing in the Bible that says that Christians are to pursue their growth and maturity in Christ only individualistically and in isolation from the rest of the body of Christ. We simply cannot grow apart from Christ and apart from His people. Amen? One theologian has written this, quote, When we are detached from Christ and His community, we guarantee our spiritual malnourishment. If we could ever visualize physically the souls of those cut off from the head, they would look like the heart-wrenching pictures of enfeebled bodies starving to death, end quote. See, this may explain why many of us don't see much growth or maturity in our lives because we're caught up in all the periphery, beloved. Man-made methods of change or we trust in our own methods rather than coming to Christ by means of His Word and staying connected to people of like precious faith who are going to help us grow, speak the truth in love to our lives and vice versa, right? We need to think about that. So what does this mean for us? Two closing remarks here. On the negative side, I think that we need to be careful and walk with discernment, right? Not to naively believe everything that we hear from people who promote an elitist false spirituality based upon subjective experiences, experiences that that they cannot even verify to be true. We must test everything in accordance with the Word of God, right? Everything in accordance with the Word of God. What does the Word of God say On the positive side, we must realize that we derive our very life and growth from God as we abide in Christ, right? We must abide in Christ, beloved. Do you remember in the upper room, Jesus is with his disciples in John 14 through 17? And if I was there and I was one of Jesus' disciples, I would be filled with fear and sadness At the fact that my Lord is going to go to the cross. Even if I didn't fully understand the ramifications of that. Or the fact that he would rise again. There would be fear and sadness. What's going to happen to us as well, right? Do you remember Jesus' words to his disciples? In the midst of everything that they would experience. John chapter 15 verse 4. Abide in me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in me. Unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me... And my words abiding you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Notice the beautiful picture there. Remain under me. Be with me. Be devoted to me. Stay connected to me is the picture there. How do we protect ourselves from false teaching? How do we protect ourselves from the latest Christianese fad? things that tend to direct our attention away from Jesus, focus upon Christ and His all-sufficiency, right? Abide in Christ. Spend time in His Word, beloved. Saturating your mind, renewing your mind with God's Holy Scripture and prayer and meditation and reflection so that you would be armed with the truth and be able to speak the truth and love to others who are opposed to the truth. Amen? We must abide in Christ. Remember what The church at Ephesus was told in Revelation chapter 2, what was the key to returning to their former spiritual state or condition? Return to your first love, right? Return to your first love. For some of us, that would be the message to us. Have you lost sight of just simplicity and devotion to Jesus and His Word? Have you lost sight of that? And your Christianity has become so complicated, you're always looking around in the culture of this church or Christianity in general and trying to, to measure up to substandards that have nothing to do with Christ and His Word. Beloved, we can all do that. We can all do that. These things are not Christ-centered sanctification, right? Return to your first love, Jesus Christ. See, the legalist, the mystic, the ascetic focuses on the do's and the don'ts of Christianity. That's all that's there for them, devoid of heart and genuine, authentic Christianity from the heart. It's all about the externals. But in God's Word, we find that first and foremost, Christianity is about a relationship by faith in Jesus Christ, right? It's about our relationship. And in this relationship, we pursue holiness aggressively and obedience diligently because of our genuine, heartfelt love and gratitude to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. May we cling to Christ, beloved, and reject experiential mysticism in all of its forms. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word that is our, the compass for our lives that redirects our thoughts to you in your infinite glory and to your Son. Help us to center our lives on your Son and to pursue holiness aggressively and obedience diligently because of the fact that we know that Jesus has set the example for us and that we are secure in Christ. We are in union with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.